caveats are important. One is that at Christ Fellowship, we want everyone uh, at Christ Fellowship, everyone that's a member of Christ Fellowship, to be Berean. And what do I mean by be Berean? I mean uh, the, the passage in the book of Acts, blanking on the chapter now, 17 or 18? 17. 17, thank you. 17, where the Bereans were more noble-minded, and they were more noble-minded because they tested everything by Scripture. So the final authority in all matters is what God has said. So let's be a people that are marked by being Berean in our study of God's Word. Uh, a few people have asked me, do I really want to have a Q&A about Revelation? Uh, and the answer is yes, I do. And there's a few reasons. One, because we want to be a church where there's just, you know, you're always free to ask questions, and we'll do the very best we can to answer whatever questions we can with the caveat that, you know, there's probably going to be questions you can ask that I'm not going to know the answer to, and then I'll do my best to try to find an answer or work with others, or perhaps there'll be wisdom in, in the room that can help us answer questions. Uh, number three, the goal of our time together would be uh, light. We want light, not heat, but light. And so we're going to strive to, to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, sometimes revelation can be a, a sensitive topic for people. There's a lot kind of stored in that book, and it's an important book. Uh, but as we interact with one another, uh, one of the things that I love about this church is just I think God has given us a lot of spiritual maturity. And so just as we interact with one another, we'll strive to, uh, yeah, exemplify godliness in all of our interactions as we talk about these things. So with all of that said, does anyone have any questions about the book of Revelation? Oh, one more thing. So we've studied through chapter 7, right, which means by God's grace I've been able to study those chapters, you know. Now there are more chapters that I've not yet had the chance to work all the way through. So I reserve the right to not know the answer uh, at this point, and I reserve the right to change the answers previously given from the first seven chapters, if I can be shown from God's Word that I'm incorrect. So I just reserve the right to change my mind. Uh, Revelation is one of those things that I think we need to humbly um, seek the Lord for wisdom and, and hold things with an open hand in the sense that just as Christ's first coming caught a lot of people by surprise because they were expecting a conquering king only to find a suffering servant, there may be some aspects of what happens in Revelation where none of us quite expected that it would quite work out that way. And that's where I think humility comes in as well in terms of as we talk with one another. All right, so now with all those caveats in mind, are there any questions about Revelation? Yes, Brian, you got your hand up first. Good job. So, Peter, it's, it's a, a kind of a two-part question. First is, um, and, and this uh, it relates to prophecy in general, is God's intent that prophecy would be clear to us? And the second part is, well, if yes, or if mostly, then why isn't it? And, and if no, then, well, what is God's intent for it? Yes. Well, that's a, great, that's a great question. All right, we can spend the rest of the time right there. Drag this thing out to the end and be like, well, time's done. All right, what is, what is God's purpose in giving us prophecy? There's several things that you can say, but I want to just start with uh, 2 Timothy, which is in my Bible, somewhere towards the back. And God's Word tells us the purpose of God's Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, 
for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So one of the fundamental purposes for prophecy is that it falls under the rubric of God's word, and the intention is that it would help us grow into Christ-likeness as we strive to understand it. Uh, that said, portions of God's word are more difficult to understand than other portions. Some portions are quite clear. Other portions are less clear. Many of the prophetic books, in my opinion, are less clear, which means that we need to be people that study to show themselves approved, workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. As it relates to the, the most fundamental question, does God want these things to be clear? Man, that's such a good question. Uh, I think he wants it to be sufficiently clear so that he can accomplish all the good purposes he has for it. I think most fundamentally the purposes that he has for prophecy is to give his people hope, uh, to point his people towards his ultimate purposes in the world, uh, that he's in control. The fact that he can give us the future indicates that he's in control. You see that in Isaiah, really the whole, I mean, many of the chapters of Isaiah 40, 43, 44, 45, 46, all of those talk about the fact that God's going to tell us what happens ahead of time so that we know that he's God and so that we know that he's omniscient. So I do not believe that every prophecy is equally clear. I think that some prophecies are harder to decipher what will happen according to God's sovereign purpose than others. Um, but I do know that he intends for us to be edified by it, and I do believe that through diligent study, uh, we can uh, gain much truth from those prophecies, uh, and if we don't get everything that's intended, well, I think the problem is with us and not with God's Word, and so we keep praying for the Holy Spirit to give us more insight. Uh, people study the Bible their whole lives, whether it's prophecy or epistles or history, and they're still learning new things and seeing new things, I think the prophecy would fit under that. That's my very best answer. Do you have a follow-up follow-up question on that or follow-up to that answer? No, no. I, I mean, I, I think that's, that's um... I'm, I'm not trying to wiggle out of the answer to your question. I do think that some prophecies are more self-evident than others. And where it's not as clear to, like, say, anybody... There should be a lot of charity, right? Where there are prophecies that good and godly people just really disagree on. I think that we should uh, be people that, that study God's word to know what we think that means. And yet there should be charity towards others that hold different opinions to the extent that what's at stake is not the essentials of the faith. Does that make sense? So there are, there's... Um, we, we've talked about it before as a church. We've talked about theological triage, that some doctrines are, are more essential than others, like the gospel is most essential, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So that's first-order issue, anything related to salvation. You have to know it to be saved. Second-order issues would be uh, anything you need to live life together well in a church, issues of church government, issues of baptism. Okay, Those things, would. what are you going to do? You have to practically pick one or the other, so that's what you do. And then third-order issues would be those issues that Christians can uh, lovingly and charitably discuss and even disagree on, uh, and yet not be divisive over. Now, in my opinion, and this is what we've taught in our membership class from the beginning of the church, is that when it comes to eschatology and the end times, uh, there's room for disagreement in Christ's fellowship. Like, we can disagree with one another about exactly how this turns out, or this turns out, or this turns out. 
Um, but, but we should do so in a way that pursues the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And we should be seeking to be iron sharpening iron, helping one another. All right. That was my second stab at it. All right. Thanks, brother. Rob. Yes. Thought of a scripture that might bear on that from first Corinthians 13, um, where it says, um, Let's see, starting in verse um, 8, love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for, uh, for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I'm fully known. So I wonder yep. if that might not bear on that a bit. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a wonderful passage. Uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that, brother. I think it does bear. Chris, over there. I think we need to bear in mind that prophecy is not only for the people who are living at the time the prophecy is given. It's also given for the instruction of the people who are living at the time when the prophecy is fulfilled. And I think that this is a great deal of our difficulty with the book of Revelation, that, uh, that a lot of the things in there don't necessarily make sense. We don't know whether they're symbolic or they're literal and so forth, and we need to admit where we don't know what they are. But the people living at the time, all these things will be much, much clearer and it will be instruction for them, and it will be a time when they need lots of instruction. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good word. Let me give you one example, I think, of that, and this is one that I haven't preached on yet, so I reserve the right to change my opinion. The two witnesses in chapter 11, this is how they describe them. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood, to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. Now, uh, there will be Christians that will look at that and they will say, I need to interpret that literally because I can't interpret that literally. And so they would see actual fire coming from their mouths and consuming their enemies. And that's possible. But I do think it's legitimate for other Christians to say maybe fire coming from their mouth is speaking of the authority. God gives them authority in some way over life and death. And if they're attacked, they're able in that way to uh, defend themselves, right, in, in some way that would, you know, they would be consumed by the words that are coming out of their mouth in some way. And, of course, there's a whole branch of eschatology that would view these two witnesses as once again symbolic for the church. And the idea, once again, is that God is... Uh, protecting his people during the time of these difficulties, and they, the ministry that the church has will be completed. So there's a, you know, I mean, there's some really tough verses in Revelation and passages in Revelation where good and godly people are just going to disagree over what exactly does that detail mean. Um, so that's just, that's just a reality. It's a really good point. Yes, John. at the end of your message this morning about whether or not we would suffer through the tribulation. You're not sure. And I was brought up to believe in the pre-tribulation rapture that God would protect us. But as you've been sharing and I've been 
reading commentaries and so forth. Um, I'm not sure where that comes in. I would like to believe it will happen because being a human, you don't want to go through something you don't have to if he's going to protect us. But yet, as you pointed out last week, these were sealed and protected. Yeah. And uh, I, I kind of lean to the fact that they seem to be Israelites because it says the 12 tribes of Israel, and you lean there, but you kind of put a different slant on it. And I read that also in other forms that God's going to protect whoever he seals because they have a ministry during this time. But I guess my real question is, when it says tribes of Israel and it names them except for Dan, who there's conjecture on why Dan is not mentioned there and so forth. But the point of it is, um, I don't know if we can know, but we can know one thing, that whatever God puts us through, the grace of God will get us through it and sustain us. So that's what I'm left with. Yeah. And I hope pre-trib is correct, but I'm I willing, do too. You know, <laughs> I, I come with you. I'm in your camp. I wanted to be right. Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. And uh, it does matter. Uh, how, and what I was trying to get at last week in terms of starting the sermon with, uh, it's lower than I thought, um, then hermeneutics, I'm like, ah. The, with her, the, your hermeneutical lens, right, your fundamental starting point and how you're going to interpret any book of the Bible matters. Uh, you cannot interpret Revelation the way you interpret Genesis. You can't do it. Or the way you interpret Psalms, you can't do it. Or the way you interpret Proverbs or one of the Gospels. There are genres of Scripture, and what we need is we need to understand what hermeneutics should we apply, what principles interpretation should we apply for this book, because it's this genre. And that, again, takes hard work, right? That, again, takes hard work in terms of understanding that. And again, that's where Christians can disagree as it relates to eschatology. What hermeneutic should I use? Now, the challenge is the Bible never says you should use this hermeneutic. It never says you should start with symbolic because there's a lot of symbology in Revelation. It doesn't say that. The Bible never says you should begin literal where possible because that's the right way to interpret. The Bible doesn't tell us that, okay? Uh, one of the challenges, I think, for us in this emotionally is that some, some teachers have tied biblical faithfulness to their hermeneutic in a way that's not helpful. And they have, they have said, hey, listen, if you don't hold my hermeneutic, you're not believing the Bible is the literal truth of God's word. And to that, I would gently just want to push back and say, brother, no, that's actually not helpful because what we need is we need God's wisdom to know how to interpret each book according to its genre. And it takes a lot of study and a lot of prayer and a lot of the help of the Holy Spirit to do that accurately. Can we know anything of the Bible? Absolutely. We can know everything the Lord intends for us to know. The Holy Spirit's been given to us to guide us to all truth. But that doesn't mean we don't have to study to show ourselves approved workmen who, need to, uh, who have no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There's hard work as it relates to how to do it. Okay. Next question. I had one that was emailed in. All right, going Sophie first. And I'll come to you, Carlos. You're next. As we've reflected the last couple of months, the overall theme of King Jesus being sovereign on the throne has been something that has been a comfort and joy for all Christians since Revelation was first written. 
I was wondering in terms of the prophetic elements, if we have any records of how the early church fathers interpreted some of those things, especially with all of um, you know, the Romans being in charge, but did they think that they were living through revelations or do we have any records of any oh, of their goodness. thoughts? Yeah, I think almost every generation has thought they were living in revelation. Like, if you want really vivid pictures of it, you can look at what was happening coming up to World War II in Italy and Mussolini, because he was the Antichrist. And then Hitler kind of swings into prominence, and then Hitler, in many writings, became the Antichrist. And then when I was a student at the Master's College, I found a book written in the 80s that was clear that Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist, and he had the mark that proved it, you see. And so, yes, we do have church fathers' writings on this. I'm not an expert in those. Um, different camps in eschatology would argue with one another about which church fathers we should listen to as it relates to that. So Justin Martyr, I believe, has said that in one of the first sermons, uh, is one of the earliest, and he was what you would call a historic premillennialist. Again, the idea is that there's a literal thousand years. But there are others, and there are others that are more learned in this than I am, in terms of the church fathers that would have been very, you know, Within a few hundred years, anyways, they would have been more amillennial, understanding that ah, the thousand years is actually talking about this present age, and we should understand this symbolically. So there's been disagreements over Revelation from the very beginning, and there will be disagreements over Revelation till the very end, unless, of course, we actually get there. And <laughs> they're like, oh, he's those two guys that are, you know, flaming fire out. That's. I've read that before. I know what that's about. And you can kind of put your finger on it and be like, yeah, I know who those two guys are. Um, I don't know if that helps your, I don't know if that answers your question at all, because I'm not, I'm not a scholar in patristics. But I do know that very early on, Christians have disagreed with one another about the best way. But I do rejoice as a premillennialist to know that the earliest view, extant, belongs to the premillennials. All right. Well, no, we got Carlos next. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to try to speak slowly. Um, I was uh, raised a very young Christian and I would say very well educated in the scriptures. Our pastor pushed us to do theology. You know, who's Jesus? Who's God? You know, those questions are, what is the gospel? That's theology. And uh, he pushed us to read a lot, blah, blah, blah. Eschatology has, uh, has always been a mystery to me. And um, and I take the book of Revelation for what it is, you know, how the history, the book of, uh, you know, being, uh, or the churches being in what is today's Turkey and actually being there and see the places and, and seeing John's, traditional place or resting place for him and but there's a lot of things that I don't know hmm. and I'm so ignorant and I don't see answers for that I just want to a little bit of assurance it is okay as a believer <laughs> to say we don't know yeah I don't know yeah and uh, you know I don't want to or pastor my I'm talking about when I was 19 years old, you know. This man told me, ignorance is not a blessing. Know your Bible. So nobody will fool you. But to this book, it is okay to 
rest, in, you know, and what is, you know, what we what we really, what we know about it, but be okay, and say I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and there, there's a, a wonderful, it's the pastor's best friend verse in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, and the things that are revealed are for us and our children that we may do them. There are things that are secret that belong to the Lord, and it does take humility to remember that and to be willing to say, I don't know. And it takes faithfulness to study as hard as you can to be a workman that, you know, doesn't need to be ashamed, but rightly divides God's word. I've got a one that was phoned in that I want to get to eventually, but uh, I thought maybe, Chris, you had another one? Here comes the microphone. I was going to comment on the patristic uh, issue, since I've read much of the uh, patristic literature. Uh, there are a number of uh, positions in the very early church. Uh, the amillennial position doesn't show up until Origen and Clement of Alexandria in the in the third century. But uh, the very early church, uh, a uh, there is something close to the post-tribulational view that you have uh, in some of them, although it's a very different view than any of the post-tribulational views today. But um, there is a common view, Tertullian's a, a great example of it, uh, where they hold a, a, something very close to the pre-trib rapture position, but they always put it before the three and a half years. They, they don't seem to ever recognize that the uh, whole period is seven years. Uh, they don't connect it with Daniel's 70th week. Yeah, no, that's helpful. Thank you. All right. Any other questions? Yes, Rika. Just want to say appreciate really your, your hard work in studying and, and holding uh, to the Word of God and teaching it. The, que the question I had like today, you, you mentioned uh, Jesus referred back to Matthew 24. Um, and he said, what do you call it, when you see that which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, right, and that the Antichrist uh, and the Daniel 70 week. Mm -hmm. As the church progresses uh, now, before, and I, I know I think we believe that we're not there yet, it's coming, this, this seven-year or time that Jesus told the apostles uh, to look for this person or, or that event, the abomination mm -hmm. that makes desolate. Do you think that that's a one literal uh, deal, in, in a sense? Um, and then also, um, I wanted you to ask a, a comment about when Jesus said the many and the few, when, like today, you re you referenced the fact that there are many before the throne that are caught yeah. up and they showed up. Is that many that couldn't be numbered as compared to the few that even find it? Is that the number? I mean, that Jesus referred to those who are saved mm -hmm. and not saved. So are we s to say that there are many more, obviously, in hell if this number could not be? Your thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> I'll try to remember both of those. Let's do first uh, the book of Daniel. Now, when I said last week, if you're... Sad because I'm taking the symbolic. Know that there's portions where you'll be happy because I actually do take it literal. And <laughs> so Daniel's uh, 70th week, I actually do take literal. If you look at verse 24 to 27 of Daniel chapter 9, uh, I believe he's talking about the great tribulation here. I think that's what he's prophesying. Let me just read it to you. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. 
no one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood. Until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. So a few things about that. There are 70 weeks. Um, many, not all commentators, would understand those weeks to refer to weeks of years. And again, it's not all. Uh, you know, particularly in the millennial camp, they would, they would have a different chronology in terms of understanding the 70 weeks of Daniel than, say, like I would. But it goes through, I think, in some pretty vivid detail what the 70 weeks are about. So there's going to be uh, seven and 62 weeks. So first, there's going to be the issuing of the decree, right, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. There's debate about which decree that was because there were several decrees about returning back, the people returning back, okay? I hold the view, actually kind of wrote this out because I figured we'd get here. My view is that it's Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 18, which occurred in 445 B.C. This is where Artaxerxes tells Nehemiah to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, Okay, so that's 445 B.C. And then, so 69 weeks is going to occur after that event until you get to an anointed one, a ruler who is going to, you know, basically be cut off and have nothing. Um, I understand that to be Jesus. If you do the chronology, as people that know more than I do have done, if you take the year being a Jewish year of 360 days and not 365 days, you come up to 32 A.D., and they will get even more precise in terms of actual dates and some saying, hey, this is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I, I say that's possible, but it seems to me looking at this prophecy and looking at what came subsequent. So this is a prophecy given to Daniel. Daniel's in the kingdom of Babylon in the 6th century B.C. foretelling the future. Well, there was a lot of future between Daniel and Jesus and so listing out how this is going to work out in some kind of a chronology, you get to the anointed one, Jesus, who's cut off and has nothing. And by whom? By the people of the ruler which is to come. And well, who are the people of the ruler which is to come? Who, who cut Jesus off? Ultimately, it was the Romans. So Daniel's indicating, in my understanding, that the Roman Empire, in some form, is going to be in some way related to this end-time empire. There's at least going to be the essence of it, or the same spirit of it at the end, enough that there's associations between the two. And you notice that that's only 69 of 70 weeks, and then there's this other week that's mentioned at the end in verse 27. He, who's the he? Well, it's the ruler who is to come. He's the one. He's going to make a firm covenant with many for one week, uh, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. So my understanding in broad strokes is that the, it's, been call, it's been differentiated between the tribulation and the great tribulation, or the 70 weeks, and then halfway through, then you get to the, 
great tribulation, at least that's the way I've learned it growing up. My understanding is that the great tribulation is the second half of Daniel's 70th week. And there's going to be an actual end-time figure, the man of lawlessness. He's going to be the embodiment of all that is satanic and evil. And he's going to demand worship. He's going to, be, he's going to demand to be worshipped as God. And he's going to cut off all other forms of worship. And if you don't take his mark, I believe Revelation 13 teaches that you will be killed. Like he's going to put you to death. Or you're going to starve. Or some, you know, it seems like they will survive in some way. I don't know exactly how that's going to happen. Uh, but some people will still be alive when Christ returns, and uh, they're going to be in the air. So my understanding, that's at the end. So that's different than a lot of your understandings, and I understand that. But I don't know how to read Daniel 70 weeks other than literal, and I'm helped by it in terms of history. I think it is pretty impressive that you can get from a decree to rebuild Jerusalem in Daniel's day to Jesus really, really closely. That's, in my thinking, a very impressive thing. And it leaves you with one more week, and I see no reason in the passage why that 70th week should be different than the 69 that came before, if I'm correct in understanding that those 69 weeks are literally weeks of years. So that's my understanding of that, okay? Your second question, I don't remember. No, what was the second question? I'm curious. Uh, will many be saved or will few be saved? Yes. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Many will be lost. I think more will be lost than will be saved. But many will be saved. So, comparatively speaking, I think so. Though I do hold the hope with Charles Spurgeon, but it's just a hope that those babies that, are, uh, that die either in the womb or tragically are aborted, as the entire world has been doing with satanic vigor for many, many years now, um, that they likewise, through Christ's sacrifice, will be with us in heaven. And so Spurgeon says, perhaps, just perhaps, the number of the redeemed will exceed the number of the damned. That's a nice hope. I certainly hope that's the case. Uh, but many will be lost, right? So Matthew 7, Jesus says, you know, the way is narrow and constricted, and fewer are those who find it. He means that. But God's grace is vast and amazing, and many, many will be saved. I mean, millions upon millions, even hundreds of millions, maybe billions, who knows? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's someone that's figured out, supposedly, how many people have lived, 14 billion people or whatever else. I don't know the proportions. I do know that it's going to be the kind of host that will magnify the grace of God in Christ. We'll look at it, and we will be absolutely blown away by how gracious God is to save such a vast multitude. Any other questions? Joan. Oh, first, I'm sorry. No, first Joan. Yep, got Angela, then Joan. Just, I'm sorry, real quick. I don't actually have an end time. So y'all can leave whenever you want to. <laughs> so y'all feel free to leave whenever you need to. You won't offend me. There's actually no end time to this. Uh, we will stop at some point. Angela. Okay, so I don't know where I stand on the rapture at this point, <laughs> um, <Yeah>. but <clears throat> I, I am confused by in Matthew 24, uh, 40, and like 41, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left, two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill, one will be taken and one left. Those two verses. Yeah, so I think that where they're taken is not a place of blessing, but a place of judgment. 
And I get that from verse 28. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. As lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. It's one of the reasons why I hold the view I hold about kind of at the end of the tribulation, Christ returns. Because when he returns, he returns to judge the enemies of God. And that's what I think that verse 28 is talking about. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. He's coming for judgment, and it's going to be really intense. Uh, There's a parallel passage that I can't think of right now. I believe it's in Luke that uses that same phrase, where the carcass is, there the vultures gather. Uh, It's probably listed here for me. Yeah, 17 verse 3. So beautiful to have the little thing there and to have Chris as well. Um, That's clearly an instance of judgment there. And so I think Scripture interprets Scripture and helps me understand that, yeah, that's coming for judgment. It's my understanding. John, that was your question? No? Okay. Any other questions? Rob? You guys are like being really nice, by the way. I know you're being nice. You don't have to be completely nice. Like if you have a burning question, feel, you, there's no question you can't ask. Just ask the question. If I don't know, I'm just telling you I don't know. But I know that there are some things on your minds, and it's okay to ask it, okay? I'm just telling you it's okay. Yep, Rob. A couple of times you've mentioned um, the end of time yes. <clears throat> in your sermons. Yes. And so, I, you know, I, I go tilt a little bit because I think of the millennial kingdom. Right. And I think of that, there being time during that. I do as well. And so, uh, so okay, that's what I was thinking. That Maybe you're thinking the end of time was um, at the fulfillment of the Great Tribulation and the judgment of Christ at that point, which I see as the beginning of this millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign yeah. of Christ. So, yeah. So I see time unfolding even during that, that period. I, I do as well. <clears throat> I think what I'm talking about is the end of this present age. And I would understand the millennial kingdom to be a subsequent age, a thousand years. And I would understand eternity following that to be the eternal state. Amen. On okay. and on forever and ever. So, yep, it's a good question. That's my understanding. Tom. I want to apply what I heard you say. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> yep, hold your microphone and up. So, uh, The position that you've been presenting mm-hmm. is, is different from what I had been taught. Sure. Okay? And so uh, if I heard what you said, then somebody could start a small group and use John MacArthur's book on Revelation, which would be a tree-trib mm-hmm. approach, yes. and, and, and teach that. They already have okay. many times. Okay. Now, the, the second test, a little bit harder, is mm-hmm. uh, I've had a little concern of, of our visitors and, and, and new Christians coming in and concluding that what you're saying is the church position, okay? And, and so yeah. uh, for me personally uh, and, and where I'm coming from, and, and when you go literal to symbolic, then um, I'm from West Virginia, and so I believe God wrote the Bible so West Virginians could understand it. Yes, he did. And, and, uh, that is true. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm literal that way. That right. I read it and what a normal interpretation or what it's saying. You have a literal hermeneutic, literal where possible hermeneutic. Yes. 
not literal exactly, but but normal. Just reading it, the words mean something, and, okay. and your conclusion is obvious from what the words are. Okay, and so it it starts painting me because uh, I have that scripture that I can read and understand it. Okay, and when you go symbolic on me, then you uh, I, I don't have any I don't have any undergirding. I, I don't have anything to to see and to go on except what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I'm curious. Uh, so that that's just a little pain that I mm -hmm. have suffered through yep. all of this. Uh, You're not alone. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I'm also very curious on on you being a student of John MacArthur. Yes. How you have gone oh, to a mercy, position yeah. different now from we're him. Getting to it. Yeah. I'm just now we're getting to curious it. about that. Now we're going. Uh, let's deal with the first one, and let's deal with the second one. The theological position of the church is embodied in the church statement of faith. So the things that the church has agreed to agree on, we have enumerated in our statement of faith. And what we have enumerated uh, as it relates to eschatology is that there's coming a judgment of the righteous and the wicked, and Christ is coming back physically. Those are kind of you know, summaries of those two statements. And so anyone that believes those two statements of eschatology would be able to become a member of the church, even though there's a great amount of difference between someone that would hold, say, an amillennial position and someone that would hold a dispensational pre-trib position uh, as it relates to things like hermeneutics and what's the starting point. So that's where we find the, so the unity of Christ's fellowship isn't ultimately found in what Peter teaches on a Sunday morning. The, the theological unity is by design, because I could die tomorrow anyways, right? And you have another pastor, and then mercy, what's he going to do with Revelation? He's going to get up and say something, you know. Um, the theological unity of the church is found in the statement of faith under the authority of Scripture, right? So Scripture is the final authority. We understand the statement of faith to be what we understand to be a faithful interpretation of what the Bible teaches about these things, and that's where we draw the line of unity, and so those that can ascribe to that statement of faith are welcome to be members of the church. And that doesn't mean that those that can ascribe aren't Christians. There are lots of Christians outside of that you know, circle of unity. It's just saying if we're going to work well together, we think we need to agree on these things. Uh, and one of the things that you have to agree on, which is difficult in many churches, is the sovereignty of God and salvation. So we, just, we don't want there to be uh, a lot of fighting over things that you know, Christians can fight over. Instead, we want to be on mission together to make disciples. Uh, so that's how to answer the first one. It's not just about what Peter says in terms of the theological unity of the church. Look to the, uh, for unity, look to the statement of faith, but then also understand that um, I'm going to be covering all kinds of topics that aren't specifically enumerated in that statement of faith. There'll be all kinds of different things that will come up that they're not enumerated. So what do we do with those things? We say each one can be convinced in their own mind, and you can disagree with one another, and you can be iron sharpening iron in one another's lives, but you have to do so gently, lovingly, patiently, uh, humbly, uh, Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpening iron, trying to spur one another onto godliness. And by God's grace, just to commend you, this church does that really well. You really do. Uh, there are more people here in this room and in the church that would not embrace a literal where possible, that's the way I'm, I'm using it, hermeneutic, uh, than some people might imagine. There are obviously a number of people that do. Second question, when did I fall from grace? Uh, <laughs> I know, literally, the church. 
when did I fall from grace? And that uh, gets to the question that was asked by someone else. And that question was, Peter, are you teaching replacement theology? Now, when someone accuses you of teaching replacement theology, they're not usually giving you a compliment. That is not a term that means I'm happy with what you're teaching. And this person wasn't accusing. They're asking the question, what's the difference between what you're teaching and replacement theology, okay? For one thing, and then I'm going to get to the history of how I changed, okay? For one thing, replacement theology, uh, you start out in the negative because it's kind of pitched negatively. And the, the idea, as I understand it most especially, is that the church replaces Israel and God is done with Israel, That's my understanding of replacement theology. The church replaces Israel, and God is done with Israel. They had their chance, they blew it, now God's on to the church, and he's working through the church. And of course, they would say the church includes all believing Jews as well. Um, I do not believe in replacement theology because, well, two reasons. One, because I don't believe God is done with the nation of Israel. I just can't read Romans 9 and 10 and 11 and understand it that way. I just can't. I mean, I may someday, but I don't think so. It seems to me, anyways, fairly clear. So I do believe that God does have a plan for the people of Israel as an act of His grace, not because He deserves it, but because as an act of His grace, He's made gracious promises in Christ, and He's going to see them fulfilled. And one day, I believe the vast majority, if not all, of the ethnic people of Israel will come to saving faith in Christ. Now, I don't have all the details of exactly how that's going to happen worked out. I don't know that anyone does. But people do their very best to kind of look at the different passages in the Old Testament and prophecies in the Old Testament to try to figure out, okay, how do you fit these together? What is going to be like? And, you know, what's going to happen in the world stage to try to understand? And that's completely fine to do that. But we do need to keep in the back of the mind that a lot of that is ultimately speculative. We're trying to put these things together, and there just needs to be humility because it may not quite work out that way. Uh, The bigger issue of how I fell from grace really pertains more to the idea of what's the distinction between Israel and the church? What are God's purposes in having both Israel and the church? So I would self-style my theology this way. I don't know that I've heard anyone else call it this, but maybe there is a group and I just read it one day and forgot and now I'm claiming it as my own. That's very possible. But I I would term myself a fulfillment theologian. I I hold to fulfillment theology. So here's my question to the group. This is group interaction. What's the Bible about? Who's the Bible about? The Bible is about Jesus. Is the Bible about the church? Well, the Bible certainly includes information about the church. uh, But it's not about the church most essentially. Is the Bible about the nation of Israel? It certainly includes information about the nation of Israel, but it's not about the nation of Israel most essentially. Who's the Bible about? The Bible's about Jesus, right? At the center of God's plan of redemption is not his Old Testament, Old Covenant people or his New Testament, New Covenant people. At the center of his plan is Jesus. So I had a conversation with a guy uh, at the church, and we were talking about the various promises of God how these promises are going to be fulfilled. And listen, understand, we don't specify this in the statement of faith, so you can disagree with me on this, and that's okay. We can just be iron sharpening iron as it relates to this. 
But here's my understanding more broadly, and then I'll explain why I believe this. My understanding more broadly is that the Bible from beginning to end is about Jesus, that Jesus is God's plan A for redemption, that he's been driving to Jesus from the very beginning, and everything else serves to point us to Christ, including the people of Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. So good and gracious promises were given to Abram. Who was Abram? Was he a godly man that was upright in all of his ways? And so, you know, God gave him grace. No, he was the son of idolaters. He himself was likely an idolater. God graciously comes to this idolater and says, I'm going to make you a blessing of all nations. All right, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And Abraham believes that promise, and he leaves his land in Ur, and then he moves, and he's in Haran for a time, and then ultimately, of course, he comes to the promised land. You get to Genesis 15, there's a problem with Abraham. He's supposed to be the father of many nations, but he doesn't have a child. He says, well, who's going to be, who's going to be my son? Is my servant going to be the son? Who's... God says, go out and look at the stars, and he goes out and he looks at the stars, and he sees all of these stars, and he believes God, right? And God counts it to him as righteousness, that he's believing God's promise about about the promise that he's already received, ultimately. And if you understand Genesis, there's actually a promise given before this in Genesis 3.15. The most fundamental promise that all of the Old Testament saints were aware of and knew about was Genesis 3.15, which is the seed of the woman who's coming to crush the head of the serpent. So at the very beginning, who is that? That's Jesus. They fall into sin, Jesus. And now the Old Testament works out to... How's this, how's this Messiah coming, this anointed one who's going to come? Well, he, he is going to come through Abraham. And you can passage at Genesis 17. And I think for me anyways, this is a pretty pivotal passage in terms of my understanding. Genesis 17. Um, and hopefully I'm going to be able to find it here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just start from the beginning. When Abraham was 99 years, the Lord appeared saying, I am God Almighty, live in my presence and be blameless, and I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell down, face down, and God spoke with him. As for me, here's my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham, for I'll make you the father of many nations. Many nations again, over and over and over. I will make you extremely fruitful, and I will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offsprings throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And I will bring you and your future offspring, and I'll give the land where you're residing, all the land of Canaan, as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. Sounds like there that he's talking about Abram and his descendants, which becomes the nation of Israel, ultimately. That's how I'm reading that, okay? That's how I always read that. That's how I always understood that. So I talked with a friend uh, one day at the church about my understanding of, well, this is a permanent covenant. This is a permanent promise. And he directed me to Genesis, to, not to Genesis, but he directed me to Galatians chapter 3. And this kind of blew my mind because, frankly, I'd never read the verse before. And uh, I, I didn't know exactly what to do with the verse. But I think it's an important verse to read because we all need to kind of wrestle with it and understand it as best we can. And again, if you disagree with what I ultimately came to understand, that's okay. We can continue to be iron sharpening iron. 
Uh, look at verse 15. Of course, always read things in context. Begin reading wherever you want, but just for the sake of time, look at verse 15. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes addition to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Abraham and to his descendants. As though referring to many but referring to one, he does not say, excuse me, to a seed. He does not say, and to seeds, and you go and you look at the Hebrew, it's actually that descendant, that word seed is in the singular. He says he doesn't say to seeds, as though referring many, but referring to one, to your seed, who is whom? Christ. So God made a covenant promise with Abraham, and God made a covenant promise with a particular seed of Abraham, and once again, the center or local, locus of the Bible is Jesus. Jesus inherits the promise of Abraham. That's my understanding of that verse. Now, I went away from that conversation somewhat confused. I'd never heard that before. And Ephesians 4 says, don't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. As you study God's word for yourself, you try to understand it. It took me some time to come to the conclusion that the center of the Bible is not the Old Testament people of Israel. The focus of the Bible, it's not like God is all about Israel in the first part, and then, well, you know, the church, it's okay, but it's going away. But then God's going to be all about Israel in the last part. And so God's all about Israel. It's not that. From beginning to end, the Bible's about a person, Jesus. In Galatians 3, as best I understand this, and I'm open to being taught you know, differently or iron sharpening iron here, Paul's saying the promise to Abraham wasn't made just to Abraham, it was made to his seed singular, which is Christ. And that's very significant. So I say I'm a fulfillment theologian. And again, I'm making that up, but maybe I stole it from someone and I don't know. And what I mean is this. Israel was the old covenant people of God was ratified at Sinai. You're going to be my special people. I'm going to walk among you. I'm going to make your kingdom a priest. All these promises. And all the people said, yes, we'll do it. Yes, absolutely. Right? This is Exodus 19. And how did the people of Israel do? They did as well as any of us would have done. It's not like they're particularly bad. They're just sinners, just like we are. Right? And their heart was idolatrous, just like our heart is idolatrous. And so all throughout the history of Israel, it's a history of what? It's a history of turning away from the Lord. Now, there's some bright spots by God's grace. But all throughout the history of Israel is one of turning away from the Lord and turning away from his promises and choosing Baal over Yahweh and choosing Asherah over Yahweh over and over and over until the Lord comes to him and says, that's enough. You're going into exile. And he sends him away for 70 years and the temple is destroyed. And that's very significant. I mean, God's house on earth is leveled to the ground. And Ezekiel even has this picture of the Spirit of God, the Shekinah glory, as it were, moving away from the temple, letting us know that it's going to be destroyed. But Israel accomplishes great and wonderful things. What does Israel accomplish most especially? Through Israel comes whom? Jesus. And so you've got this line from the seed of the woman to Abraham, to Abraham and his seed, that same promise is passed down to the sons of Abraham. They keep getting the promise, keep getting the promise, keep getting the promise. And, and, and then it gets clarified more when David comes along. And now all of a sudden we find out that this one is going, this Messiah who's coming is going to be one that sits on the throne forever and ever. 
which only God can fulfill that, right? Only God. In Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, wait a second, all of a sudden Jesus is saying, hey, why does David call him Lord if he's his son? You know, David's in the spirit understands that this isn't just a human. This is someone that's more. And then you have all the prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament. The coming one is coming. The coming one is coming. The coming one is coming. Is Jesus Jewish? He is. Amen. Jesus, here's the money line. Jesus is spiritual Israel. That's what I understand. Okay? I understand Jesus to be true Israel. He fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament. Paul says that in Christ, all the promises of God are what? They are yes and amen. They've been fulfilled in Christ. That's significant. That's very significant, okay? So I'm just telling you about my journey, right? This is, this is how I'm wrestling with this theology stuff. Now, does Christ cease being at the center of God's plan after he rises from the dead and ascends to heaven? No, the book of Acts, what is that? Ultimately, it's the, we call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But Luke says, uh, I began to teach you about what? All that Christ began to do, right? All that Jesus began to do, right? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is at work now forming what? A people of God that are marked from many nations. And isn't that the beginning of the promise to Abram? You're going to be a blessing to many nations. How is that going to happen? Once again, it comes through Jesus. Now, what happens when someone puts their faith in Jesus? The Bible says that we're united to him. That's why Ephesians 1 is in Christ, in him, in Christ, in him, over and over and over and over. And here's my understanding, that the way I become united to true Israel, which is Christ, is by faith in him. And it's not just for me, a Gentile, it's for Jews as well. So Jews, when they put their faith in Jesus, they're united to Christ. They're one with him. Gentiles, when they put their faith in Jesus, they're united to Christ. They're one with him. And all of a sudden, God does this thing in Ephesians 2, which is magnificent. He takes two people who are separate, and he brings them together, and they're not an amalgam, Jew and Gentile. Now there's something new. They're the church, which is all united to Jesus. So when I say I'm a fulfillment theologian, my understanding of how the Bible fits together is that it fits together and that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. And from beginning to end, the plan of God throughout Scripture is that Jesus would come and he would, he would bring about God's redemptive plan for all of history. And that includes Jews and Gentiles. Now, what about the promises of Romans 9, 10, and 11? Has God forsaken his people whom he foreknew? And Paul says, no. Paul says, after all, what? What's the next thing he says? I'm also Jewish. Right? Paul's a Jew. So he's like, no, God hasn't forsaken his people because I'm Jewish. And look, I'm a Christian. But then Paul goes on to argue in uh, 9, 10, and 11, and my understanding of those passages, that God has a plan, a plan of grace for his Old Testament people Israel as well. But that Old Testament people of Israel, how are they going to be saved? Are they going to be saved through sacrifices and lambs and bulls and goats? Hebrews tells us those can never save anyone. The only way they can be saved is what? By faith in Jesus. So the day is coming, in my understanding, and I don't know all the details of exactly how it's going to work out, that, and I do think it's going to be eschatological. I mean, I think something cataclysmic is going to happen, and the people of Israel are going to be like, wait a second, that was God. 
and the Holy Spirit is going to work, and the gospel is going to be there, and they're going to repent and believe and put their trust in Jesus. I don't know the details of exactly how this is working out. That's just what I understand the Bible to teach. So they're going to become Christians. Now, here's a question. Will they possess the Holy Spirit? I mean, they better. Because if you don't possess the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian, right? Because you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So they've got the Holy Spirit. Are they believing a true gospel or a false gospel? They're believing a true gospel, okay? And so here's my, here's my money question, really. What are they if not the church? If they're not the church, what are they? They have the same gospel. They have the same spirit. They say have the same hope. They have the same destiny. And Paul says that Jews and Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus, well, they're all going to be made one in him. And so my understanding is that the entire Bible is about Jesus. It's focused on him. And God's work of redemption is that Old Testament covenant people of uh, Israel and New Testament covenant people, Jews and Gentiles, will all be looking to Jesus in different ways. Now, that's significant. Um, how were people in the Old Testament saved? How were they saved? Faith in what? Some people are saying a Savior to come. When I was in college, I said faith in God's Word, faith in what God had revealed to them. I think both answers are right, but I think it's more specific to say what God had revealed to them from the very beginning is a Messiah's coming. So in John chapter 8, uh, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and they don't like the fact that he's, you know, saying before Abraham was, I am, you know, he's claiming deity there. What does he say about Abraham there? He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see what? Rejoiced to see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. Job, when he's suffering, what does he cry out? I know my Redeemer lives. What's he putting his trust in? Putting his trust in Christ. The prophecy of uh, Exodus 18, I believe. Exodus, Leviticus 18, Exodus 18. A prophet greater than Moses. Thank you, Deuteronomy 18. One of those 18s. <laughs> All throughout the Bible, the Old Testament people of God, who are Jewish, but not just Jews, you know, there are some Gentiles sprinkled in right? Because the plan has been always all nations. But throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God are consciously putting their faith in the promise of God, of a Redeemer, of a Messiah. Now, they don't have all the details that we have because we live on this side of the cross. They had what God revealed to that point, And yet, their faith is always pointed towards whom ultimately? It's always pointed to Jesus. And that's why I consider myself not a replacement theologian, as if the point of the Bible is the church, but a fulfillment theologian, because the point of the Bible is Jesus. And in him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. And then God is now working out this plan of redemption, and he's given us prophecies to help us figure out how this is going to work out uh, towards the end of time. And I do believe the prophecies in the Old Testament and in uh, Romans in particular are telling us that God has a purpose for the nation of Israel. It is interesting to me that there are no Hittites. There are no Babylonians, right? They're not even Byzantine people. They're closer. There are no Byzantines anymore, right? There are some Assyrians, actually, believe it or not, but that's kind of weird. But just a few. Anyways, 
But you cannot stamp out the Jews. I mean, Satan's tried over and over and over. You can't stamp them out. Why? Because God's not done with them. That's the only thing that makes sense to me, because he's not done with them. But they're not going to be saved any way different than we are. They're going to be saved by the true gospel. They're going to be saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're going to be united by faith to the people of God from every age. And that's my theology. I call it fulfillment theology, and I probably stole it from someone, but that's how I understand the Bible fits together. Kimberly, you have a thought or a question. Wait, there's a microphone. Many thoughts. Okay. Thank you. I don't know that I want this amplified. <laughs> okay, so, um, so the church are the believers in Jesus Christ. The church is certainly believers in Jesus Christ, okay. yes. Are the millennial saints, a, a, they become part of the church, and the Jews become part of the church, those that have been uh, the people that have had their uh, heads taken off? Well, I mean, it depends on what you want to call uh, the people the in glory. Okay. We're going to be the people of God from all ages, but we're all going to be believing in the same Messiah. Some are looking at them this way when they were saved. Some are looking back at them this way when they were saved. But we're all saved by the same gospel ultimately. And do we all end up then in heaven? Who's inhabiting the, the new king, the kingdom on earth? Yeah, that's hard for, I think, everyone. But when you use that word heaven, it often is shorthand for the new heavens and the new earth, okay. Revelation 21.1. Okay, yeah. At some point, uh, heaven is coming down. This world's going to be remade. And God will dwell among his people forever and ever in a new heaven and a new earth. And that's going to be glorious. And we get glimpses of what that's going to look like in Revelation 21 and 22. And all who have trusted in Christ, Old Testament, New Testament, they're all going to be there. In the new heaven and the new earth. Yes. None were lost. None will be lost. But there's no distinction as to who's inhabiting the earth earth and who's inhabiting the only people who will be inhabiting the earth at that time will be the redeemed from all ages both jew and gentile who will be the one people of god forever and ever all who have rejected christ will be separated from the presence of god forever and ever in hell now who's on earth on the millennium is that your question that's the question that's the question that's a good question i don't think i fully know okay just checking. yeah yeah i don't think i fully know i'll give you my guess okay, okay? i'll give you my guess here's my guess I think when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, those that are still alive and follow him will be transformed in a moment in a blink of an eye, and they will be with him forever and ever. And I think that Christ will rule on the earth over uh, people that are rebellious rejectors of him. Uh, there has to be some people like that, or else when Satan's released, he'd have no one to talk to. And I think that the saints will be there. And you say, well, that's weird. So why on earth... Would people looking at Jesus, knowing who he is, decide they want to rebel against him? And I would say the only answer I can give you is because that's how ugly sin is. The problem is not that we don't know that God's bigger than us. The problem is that we hate God by nature. I, we do not want this king to rule over us. And I do think Satan presents himself as an angel of light. I do think he's going to present himself as a rival power to God in some way. I do think he's going to deceive dece deceivable hearts. And there's going to be a, a rally at the end against God, and I think they're going to get absolutely waylaid. That's a very literal reading of Revelation 20. The problem is, I don't know how to read Revelation 20 differently. 
that's me. There are people in the room that can read it differently, but <laughs> that's how I read it, okay? Does that, does that help at all? Yeah. Yeah. And that, and, but again, I'm just saying, I don't think I have all those details figured out. I'd love to meet the person that does have all those details figured out. But we're pulling from patchworks of prophecies in the Old Testament and promises in the New Testament. And the problem is you're trying to picture together some kind of chronology. And I think we can agree on the big rocks, many of us, but maybe some of the smaller pebbles, it gets a little more challenging. Um, exactly what role will the nation of Israel have in the end times that brings them to salvation in Jesus? I think a really good case could be made for that from passages like Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 38 and 39, possibly. I think it could, but I don't have all those details worked out, and I don't think that that's a first-order issue of theology. I would put that in a third-order issue of theology. Now, what do you do if you're a member of Christ Fellowship and you've just heard this thing called fulfillment theology for the first time? You know, what on earth is that? And Peter made up the title, which makes it even worse because he didn't know what else to call himself. What do you do with that? Brothers and sisters, we study God's Word. We press into Scripture. You know? We go back and what, what is Galatians? I mean, seriously, what is Galatians 3, 15, and 16, and 17 talking about? Because I think it's significant. So what does it mean? I think we've got to press into that. And you've got to look at, okay, so how does that fit in with Genesis 17? Because they're not contradicting themselves. If we rightly understand them, we're not contradicting themselves. Okay, so how do we understand that? And I think we have to do the good work of being Berean and pressing into God's word. And at the end of the day, listen, if you disagree with me, pray for me. And if I disagree with you, I'm going to love you and pray for you. And we'll keep pressing into God's word together is the goal, that we would keep stirring one another onto love and good deeds. And this isn't the only area where there's probably some theological difference in the church. And that's why we have a statement of faith that aligns us in terms of the things that we think are essential for a church functioning together. I went into far more detail than I thought it was going to, but uh, there it is. You guys have been super patient. Uh, those that just hate leaving in a group because it makes you feel like you're being rude, but you really want to leave, you're welcome to leave. Uh, if you don't want to leave, if you want to ask more questions, I'm here, and I'll keep asking or answering questions as best I can for a little bit. Chris, what? We got to ask. No, it's, it's so important so we can get it uh, recorded. Thank you. I just want to make one correction to what you said. Okay. The 360 day calendar is not the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar is a lunisolar calendar. A year is around 354 days or 380 days, uh, depending on the year, and it averages over the long term uh, the, the solar year of 365 and a quarter days. Um, the, I received that. And uh, the, the only indication we have of the 360-day calendar, besides some apocryphal literature, uh, in the intertestament period uh, is hints of it in, in, uh, in Daniel chapter 12, but in more detail uh, when we get into Revelation a little farther. Helpful. Thank you. Anyone else? Rob? Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> the thing about um, the Jew and the Gentile is, really is addressed a lot in uh, Romans 11. Christ is certainly our only path to salvation, 
But nevertheless, there seems to be a distinction made for some reasons between Jew and Gentile, even in the day of Christ. And, it's, and it's, Paul calls it a mystery. And in um, Romans 11, um, where is it? Towards the end, 25 maybe? Yeah, he says, um, Romans 11, well, I'll, say, I'll start with 25. Yeah, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There seems to be some importance in understanding a distinction between Jew and Gentile, and it turns on something having to do with the hardening. And I would suggest that the hardening has to do with um, our relationship with Christ. What is the hardening if it's not some kind of insensitivity to the gospel and to Christ. Amen. Yeah, I think it is. So there appears to be a, some kind of a distinction there between Jew and Gentile, mm -hmm. at least for some period of time. And he says, um, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there's no dispute that Christ is the only path to, to heaven, to salvation. But there is a distinction between the historical uh, uh, role as it plays out between Jew and Gentile. Yes, I and, agree with that. And so we're all fulfilled in Christ, but Christ, God also made promises to, to Israel beyond the seed, and the, those promises go to, um, uh, and I don't know all the promises, but he made promises Lots to Abraham as well. Yeah, sure. That, that pertain to, the, uh, to, the, to, the, to, to Israel itself, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So the wonderful thing is that fulfillment, which we, we've talked about, fulfillment, which is in Christ, mm -hmm. will um, apply to all Israel as well. You know, th they will not yes. be denied. But there seems to be a distinction because there is this period of time when there's a hardening that's come upon Israel, and then that, and then until the fullness of Gentiles comes in. So, I don't know how we can get around the fact that there's a distinction, you know, without a difference. So it, th there's no difference because the only fulfillment is in Christ. Yes. But the historical outplay, the roles as they've, you know, and it's a mystery. It's characterized as such. We may not fully understand it. Yeah. But anyhow, I, I think that's one reason why Paul is dealing with this difficult issue yeah. before the uh, church at Rome. And I think that those that would be considered replacement theologians by people that would call them replacement theologians would do so because they say God has no future plan for the people of Israel that now he's moved on to the church and there's, he's done with Israel and that there's no future for them. And I've heard people say that, and I think that's wrong. Scriptural per, per Romans. Right? In my opinion, it's not. Yeah, it's yeah. clearly stated as yeah. such. In my opinion, it's not. Now, they're, they're not unintelligent people. They have good theological reasons for believing what they believe. I just disagree with their theological reasons, and I think that passages like this trump their theological reasons uh, for why they would hold to that. But And I, I agree with everything you're saying. There is still a distinction between Israel as a nation, as an ethnic group, and Gentiles. That's absolutely true. And it must be that way for when the time of Gentiles ends, that's apparently, if I'm understanding passages correctly, when Israel will be saved, as in the vast majority of ethnic Israel or all of ethnic Israel will be saved at that time. And I think you're in the end times at that point. But that doesn't mean that Jews can't be saved now by God's grace. We have people it's a, in our it's a church. partial hardening. It's characterized as a it's partial hardening. Partial hardening. Amen. So we should pray for the Jews. We should share the gospel with the Jews, and we should rejoice when they put their faith in their Messiah Jesus. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I agree with that. 
Anything else? Looks like we may be wrapping up. Yes, surely. Let me just say, I had no idea the question I was asking. Okay. And your extended answer. But I really do appreciate it. Thank it, you. It gave me insight and understanding of, of where your mind is, at least. Okay. Thanks, so brother. I appreciate I you appreciate saying that. that. So I'm not going to ask another question. I'm going to leave. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Yeah, and I don't want to be hit by lightning either. Yeah. All of them are going on. Um, I, I just wanted to understand um, your position and also um, in um, after chapter four, my understanding was chapter four through I think through chapter 19, uh, my understanding is that the church was absent um, and that um, that there, the church was raptured. And, um, and the reference to uh, the people are called earth dwellers. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I, um, those are the people that I understood that were not raptured. Now that would be a pre-trib um, understanding. That's correct. Um, and I would think that those people would be the ones who are not believers or followers of Christ. Yes. Um, but Those who are, the earth. but yes. that um, um, Christ is calling them. I mean, he's waiting for them. I mean, um, that's what I understood yeah. to say. Um, now, um, and I think that's true. To a point, I do. I agree with you to a point, yes. Okay. And then you can, you know, you know, expound on your point. Sure. Uh, which I would like to hear. Um, I just, I just, um, I'm, I'm just thinking that when you are explaining your point of view or your point, I think it's really important for us a, as Christ Fellowship to 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 understand that um, that that it, that there are different po that to to search the scriptures mm -hmm. and 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 to encourage each one of us to search the scriptures. And um, I can I can remember in a former church that I was at attending that he would say, "Don't take my word for it. Search the scriptures." I mean, and and I think that a, a frequent um, exhortation about that is really really helpful because I'm thinking there are, as Tom said, there are people that come and maybe they think, "Whoa, that's not what I think or believe or understand," Certainly. and then they're kind of like, oh, "You know, I'm oh, out yeah. of here." But I, I just think that comes from, um, and and I just, I'm, that's a word of encouragement. Yeah, that's yeah, I, you know, I, and I appreciate. Me. I hear what you're saying. I do. Um, there are also people who will come and they'll hear that and they'll say, "Amen." That's what I believe. Um, because that's what they understand the book of Revelation to teach. And it's challenging. What, what you can't do as a preacher is you can't undercut the authority of preaching every Sunday. Say, no, don't listen to me. Just study God's word. Hey, guys, don't listen to me. Just study God's word. You can't do that because preaching the word is both commanded and it's appointed means of grace for the congregation. 
there should be regular reminders for the people to understand that the ultimate authority is not, you know, Peter's opinion or Bryce's opinion or anyone else's opinion. But if we constantly say, hey, don't listen to me, just study God's word, what that's going to do is just undercut the authority of the pulpit, which I don't think we want to do that as a church. I think we, we want to have both of those. Um, and that's why, for one thing, it's good to have a plurality of pastors. Like, if you just got one pastor, and he's just up there, and he's got his little axe to grind about some weird thing, and he's just, and there's no other pastors to pull in the line and be like, hey, brother, you know, I mean, uh, let's talk about this from the Bible. And of course, it's not just pastors, but it's particularly helpful when it is other pastors. It can be like, hey, let's, uh, I think maybe you're getting led away to the weeds over here. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that answers your question. I want to be careful not to undercut the authority of the pulpit in ways that I think on almost any other issue, most of us would not want it undercut, right? Like when I preached on Genesis 1 and I preached seven literal days, because I believe that, uh, that's not in our statement of faith. But I didn't say, guys, listen, don't listen to me on this. Just, you know, believe the Bible, what it says. I preached, I believe before God, having studied this and prayed about it, that this is what the Bible teaches. And I think I have to preach that way. I think it's important for my role as an overseer in the church that I would preach, you know, First Peter says, as the oracles of God. And the idea is with authority, with power, you know, and I'm not going to get it right, which is why I need, I need the people in this church to pray for me. There will be times when I'm going to have to say, you know what, I got it wrong on that issue. Uh, I know I don't know everything about Revelation. I, listen, there was uh, nine years before I even thought about jumping into this one because not only do I find it intimidating, but I also know that there's different groups in the church, and I want to be careful not to divide the church over this issue, right? Um, and so, so I have, uh, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I think that it's important for us to always remember that God's word is the ultimate authority, and let's be Berean and go to it, Absolutely. And yet, I, I don't think it would be wise, ultimately, if, you know, every other Sunday or something like that, I'm like, hey, guys, remember, just, it's what the Bible says, it's not me. I think that's going to undercut the authority of the pulpit, and that, I may be misreading you in some ways, or not understanding what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I could be misunderstanding you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think that's wise. I think that's good for us to do that. Um, can I ask a question for the few of us that are left? You guys are like the Marines or something, uh, <laughs> the Marines of Q&A. If I was, and I'm asking for, um, let's wrap up the Q&A here. Thank you for the time of the Q&A.